Welcome to another scintillating episode of Clothes Horse, the podcast that aims to decode and demystify the fashion industry so you can avoid giving your hard-earned money to assholes. I'm your host, Amanda. If you've been listening, then you know I get really bent out of shape about hang tags and other generally wasteful marketing type stuff. A few nights ago, I decided to unwind with a boozy seltzer and a deep Google search for sustainable hang tags. I needed to know for me and for you if anyone out there was doing something different. And guess what? Found something. Outer Known is a sustainable brand started by pro surfer Kelly Slater. It began as a menswear company, but the brand has since added women's wear. And you know what? It's pretty cute and versatile. The styles feel timeless, like they could live in your closet for years and years. And no, this isn't sponsored content. I didn't even know this brand existed until I began my hang tag search. Autonone seems pretty committed to being as sustainable and innovative as possible. 90% of their clothing is made of recycled, regenerated, or organic fibers. They are using hang tags and interior labels. Interior labels are like country of origin, care instructions, and they're required by law. Like You can't take those out. Anyway, so they're using hang tags and these interior labels that are made of cornstarch. So they are fully dissolvable. Like, forget about recycling, just throw it in some water. And the cornstarch does not affect plumbing or septic systems. I know you are worrying. And remember, like even recycling a hang tag still requires energy. It still has a carbon footprint. And then, of course, you're counting on the customer to remember to put the hang tag in their recycling bin. And I'm going to be honest, even as uptight as I am, that's not always happening in my house. If you have any experience with buying clothes from Outer Known, let me know how it went for you. And if you think there is another brand out there that's doing something really cool, like something super innovative like this, drop me a line. Your money is as powerful as your vote, so let's help one another cast our votes with the brands that are doing something good. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to send me some posy vibes or give me suggestions. It feels good to know that people are listening. (laughs) My friend Michelle, who will be my guest for an upcoming episode about denim, thinks I should give you all a little lesson about brands versus retailers versus wholesale versus direct-to-consumer. And you know what? She's right. To be fair, I've been playing fast and loose by using brand and retailer interchangeably because, well, it's complicated. So let's see if I can break this down. Okay, so brands. I was like, I don't even know how to describe brands, so I Googled it. (laughs) Did you ever have that kid in your class who would start a book report with like, Webster defines love as blah, 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 blah? Did you ever have that person in your grade? I, I remember it being a pretty common practice at my junior high. I still laugh about it. Anyway, a brand is technically a person's perception of a product, service, experience, or organization. In the world of fashion, it's like Levi's or Comme de Garçon or For Love and Lemons. But see, here's where it starts to get dicey already. And I think we just started, right? So 10 or 20 years ago, that would have been the end of the definition of brand. But now lots of brands have their own stores selling maybe only their own brand, or they might even be selling some other brands alongside it. And they might also have their own online direct-to-consumer business by selling via their website, so directly to their customers. It makes sense for them financially, because not only do they get a chance to build their brand image exactly as they envision it, 
they can also make a lot more money off their product than they do by selling to a retailer. Okay, so now you're asking, what's a retailer? Well, this one is easy, <laughs> sort of. It's, it's a store, right? Whether it's a real, live, actual store or an online store. So think like The Gap or Madewell or Free People. But see, you can also buy Madewell and Free People at other retailers like Nordstrom. So then they're also brands, right? You can see how this is getting really confusing. Remember when we did that exercise in episode two with Nike selling product to Nordstrom? Well, let's try to do that again to see why it's much more lucrative for brands to sell their stuff directly to you via their boutique or website, rather than letting you buy from Revolve or even Amazon. So what brand should we use for an example? You know what, let's go with For Love and Lemons, primarily because my desk, where I'm recording this right now, is directly next to my closet and I see a For Love and Lemons dress that I rented this month. So let's pretend that this dress costs $200. That's the MSRP, which means Manufacturer's Suggested Retail Price, which by the way is generally not just a suggestion, but a mandatory retail price. I'm sure you could charge $250 if you wanted, but with the power of Google, customers are gonna find it somewhere else for $200 and they won't buy it from you, and they'll think you're a jerk. And when you agree to buy stuff from For Love and Lemons as a retailer, you agree that you won't charge less than the MSRP because that can hurt other retailers. It creates unfair competition. So you're not going to go out there and list it on your site for $150. So most brands offer retailers a 55% markup from the wholesale price. And once again, that can change depending on the brand, depending on who they're selling to. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different nuance in there. And I will say there's a lot of push from retailers to brands to give them a better markup. So basically, the retailers want to pay less, right? But we're going we're gonna to stick to this 55% markup idea. Okay, so if the MSRP is $200, the retailer, let's say it's Revolve, is probably paying $90 for it. See, I did that calculation for you. That wasn't painful at all, was it? It might be less if they have negotiated a discount with the brand, but that's pretty challenging. It's also safe to assume that For Love and Lemons is making a 50% markup or in that ballpark, which means it costs them $45 to make it. So when they sell that dress to Revolve for $90, they make $45 off of it. And to be completely transparent, I'm giving you a very simplified version of this because most brands use a showroom to sell their brands to retailers, so that showroom is also gonna take a commission. So for Love & Lemons, it's going to make less than $45 from the sale when all is said and done. But let's just pretend that somehow for Love & Lemons sold this directly. Okay, so we did that exercise. Well, now let's just say that you go directly to the For Love and Lemons website and buy the same dress there. So remember, they have to sell it for $200 also, otherwise they're going to alienate all of the retailers they sell to. So it cost them $45, right? And they sold it for $200, and that means they made $155 off of it. Wow, right? Because remember, they were only making $45 when they sold it to Revolve. So it's so much better for them when you buy it directly. And brands are picking up on that, okay? That's why they are opening their own stores both online and offline. My advice to you is if you love what a brand is doing and you wanna show your support, it's always best to buy directly from the brand. 
Anyway, I'm still going to be using retailer and brand kind of interchangeably because as you can see, a lot of brands are functioning as both retailers and brands and vice versa. Do you have more questions about the business of wholesaling and retailing? Reach out. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day and I am not kidding. Today's super special guest is Amy, an expert in the world of production, thanks to years of experience. I love introducing all of you to jobs that you didn't know existed in fashion, so I'm excited for you to hear all about the stuff Amy has to do in a day. She's going to explain, well, first off, WTF is production, how she works with buyers and designers, and her experience with factories, including the transparency into the actual factory conditions and how mass cancellations by retailers affect not only the factories, but their supply chains and a ton of workers that aren't even sewing the garments. It's one of the first times in years that Amy and I haven't talked about dollhouses, Barbies, Rosé, or Hello Kitty, but you know what? It was still a pretty good time. So let's do this. Today's special guest is my friend Amy, who I worked with way back in the day at Nasty Gal. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this uh, on the podcast because I don't know if her parents are going to listen, but we did used to stand outside the building and smoke and complain multiple times every day. But if her parents are listening, uh, those were my cigarettes and she was just holding them for me. <laughs> uh, and so Amy was actually my production partner at Nasty Gal, but I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hi there. Um, so basically, you know, four-year-old me started making my Barbie clothes on a sewing machine that my mom pulled up from the neighbor's curb the night before trash day. Um, I definitely grew up thinking I was going to be a glamorous fashion designer. Um, I ended up studying fashion merchandising in college. I uh, did not study design, much to the disappointment of four-year-old me. And I've worked in this industry for 17 years. It's all I've ever known as an adult. With regards to production, I didn't really know what it was until I started doing it. And even then, there was still tons to learn. I'm thankful at this stage of my career, I can use all my experience to work um, currently with a small new brand from product to operations and all that it entails. It's a new challenge, constantly evolving in an industry that's constantly evolving. So I'm glad you mentioned that you didn't know what production was until you started doing it, because I would assume that almost all of our listeners don't know that this is a job or what it is. So what is production? Like, what does that mean? That's a really fair point. It's a really diverse job. I like to say that in production, you get to work with everybody, but also that you have to work with everybody. <laughs> so that means you got to be really comfortable saying no. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of math. You've got to understand all the minutia of costing and all the minutia of garments. Fabric yields on a single style fabric cost for uh, a type of fabric. Um, very exciting things like duties and import cost. Um, and then, you know, how that kind of all works out against the brand's margins, what the buyer needs to hit, uh, what it can retail for. I mean, you're really doing everything you're working with. Now, you're not doing everything, but you're working with everybody. And that's really the, the cool part about the job. Like you see the garment from concept to completion, from the design inception, along with the development teams, the fit techs, of course, the designers and the buyers, absolutely the factories, all the way through logistics and quality control, basically until it's ready to go into the store, you're part of the process. 
So in my experience, I've noticed that people who work in production need to be really organized. Like it's not a career path for people who just kind of wing it. Yeah. Like you have to have a process in place for mm-hmm. everything you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're really, you're, you're beholden to the calendar and and meeting that financial expectation. And so ultimately you're gatekeeping, you know, the the quality, the cost and the delivery. Yeah, it's uh it's definitely a great job for the type A people of the world, I think. It's it's hard. I always feel like the production people have the most stressful job anywhere I've worked. Well, I mean, you know, all jobs are stressful and all <laughs> facets kind of play into it, but you know, it's it's definitely you know, on the on the curve of glamour in the industry, it's it's towards the definitely not the glamorous side. <laughs> I mean, I think being organized and a diplomat is pretty glamorous, but <laughs> I was I was telling one of my friends last night that I feel like buying, if you were going to solidify the glamour of buying and what it really was, it would just be a whole stack of half-empty old Starbucks coffees just like laying on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, production would just be like, um, like a, a furrowed brow and a lot of spreadsheets. Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. So I, you know, I've, I've worked with you for a long time, so I already know that you are an expert in a lot of things, but specifically in knits production. So I have a little question from a listener on Reddit. Uh, her name is Arakari Berry. And she said to me, I just want t-shirts that aren't see-through. Everything seems to be made out of super thin, flowy slub knits, but I don't want my bra to show. So then I need to wear a cami. I don't want to wear layers. I just want you to use enough cotton to make the shirt opaque. And I... I mean, I agree with her. Like, why are all the t-shirts now so thin and, like, drinky? <laughs> well, I mean, the quick answer to that is it's fast fashion. Um, you know, this the fast fashion trend really dictates that goods need to be on the sales floor, ASAP, constantly turning out uh, new merchandise. That means we got to cut some corners. And the easiest, fastest, most obvious place to do that was is the fabric. When we use a lot of synthetic blends to make that happen, we use the thinner weight fabric. We use factories, whether domestic or import, that uh, are more akin to that kind of basic garment style. Ultimately, you know, I would say if you're looking for something like that, your best bet is to kind of get out of those fast fashion spaces. I know that's hard mm-hmm. because fast fashion itself is kind of forced other brands that were more traditional to kind of recalibrate um, how they do business. But ultimately, there's a complete market that's kind of not rebelling against fast fashion, but holding fast to more traditional stuff. It's it's out there, I promise you. Hopefully that will answer everyone's questions. It makes sense to me. I mean, I hate these cheap clothes. My pet peeve about them is that when you can see the little bit of pinching of your bra underneath, I just hate that so much. I agree. It's it's just about the money you spend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 disposable. It's it's like you know you're gonna buy it for something specific, and you know you know you might get one wear out of it. You know, it's unfortunate. It's it's not a a, a great longevity business model. It, it's not doing the consumers' closets any favors. But like I said. 
it's out there. There's brands. I won't specifically name check them. Um, they're not paying me enough for that, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) that's what Google's for. Don't worry guys. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's out there. I promise you, but the short answer is they're just trying to get it done cheaply. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to get it done cheaply so that it's at a price point that's enticing for you to buy it. But ultimately maybe spend twice as much and you'll have something that lasts way longer than twice as long. Totally. And I mean, that's really the name of the game here. If you have the luxury to spend the money, you should. And and for certain staples, you know, I mean, perfect white tea is like, you know, everybody, everybody claims to make the perfect white tea, but you know, that's also really subjective. But you know, when it comes to cert- certain things in your closet, you definitely want to make the investment and it doesn't have to be hundreds of dollars. No, no. I think there's a fine line. In fact, when I see t-shirts that are over a hundred dollars. I mean, even below that, I'm like, what's, this is sketchy. You're paying for branding, you know? Absolutely. Before we record an episode, it's not like I just was like, okay, Amy, now we're recording Uh, surprise. I'm going to hit you with some questions. We actually put together an outline to kind of come up with what we were going to talk about. So we wouldn't meander around. And we realized that before we could even talk about what production does, we needed to outline the like ideal product development process for a brand or retailer. And once again, this is the ideal version and different brands do things different ways, but we thought we would share that ideal process. So uh, step one should always be a hindsight meeting. And this is, this is really led by the buyers and maybe the planning team. Um, and in this situation, you're kind of sharing sales information and insights from the same buying period. So when I say that, I mean like if we're about to talk about the kind of product we want to design and buy for fall, then we're going to be looking at last fall's results. We're going to think about more recent results as well, because sometimes there can be huge market shifts in terms of trend or price point or fabrics that we've discovered or whatever. But in general, we're going to be looking at the same time last year. And so buyers will really be digging into some details here. I mean, it can get really granular depending on who your buyer is. Um, If I'm your buyer, we're going to talk about everything. We're going to talk about for example, the price points that worked. So a buyer might be able to be as specific as saying like, hey, based on analysis, it looks like our customer thinks $98 is the best price bucket for a dress. So you know, the conclusion there would be, let's design more into that $98 price point for dresses. And the buyers might also talk about trends, uh, silhouettes, and you know, even how colors performed. You know, I've definitely worked in businesses where black was always our number one color, but then abruptly it would become white because you know, maybe Kim Kardashian was wearing like monochromatic white looks. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was like a nasty yell thing that happened. <laughs> so, so, you know, we want, we want to talk about that too. And then, you know, we're going to talk about fabrics uh, in certain categories is a little bit more important than others. Like I would say, for example, in sweaters, you really want to talk about how maybe alpaca performed versus acrylic or wool or, I mean, some of these are sounding way more expensive than a lot of the brands I've worked for, but you get the picture. And then, you know, we might say something like, hey, puff sleeves were slow for us. Like they were 20% of the sales, but they were 50% of what we bought. And so what that would mean is we had a lot of puff sleeve stuff hanging around that no one wanted and we had to take it to Markdown. So that would probably say like, let's maybe not design that much stuff with puff sleeve, even if it is like on the runways, maybe we'll just do a tiny bit this time, you know, like let's come up with a plan there. And so at this point also, and I mean, this is like the ideal situation, 
the buyers should be sharing a line plan with the designers. And what that is, it's basically the number of styles at each price point and silhouette that they plan on buying. So then the designers will know what they should design. And I mean, that benefits them as well because they shouldn't waste their time designing 20 ball gowns when the buyer is only going to buy one in the first place. So it really should help them target what they're going to work on for the next few weeks. Now, next, the designers are going to take that line plan from the buyers and they're going to, it's going to be in their brains and they're going to combine it with some like creative trend direction. And, you know, it's like a blender in there. And then they come up with some rough sketches and maybe they'll even pull some fabric swatches or vintage samples to fully tell the story. So Amy, would production usually be involved at this point as we're about to start sketch review or is production still in the dark about what's going on? If we're talking about the ideal situation, then yeah, I think I think sketch review is a good time to get us involved. So sketch review is the next meeting, and it's basically exactly what I it sounds like. <laughs> it's the designers will present these ideas to the buyers. And so here, the buyers will decide what they want to move forward with. Stuff might be dropped here, uh, maybe because the buyer just doesn't like it. I mean, I'm going to be honest, that happens all the time. Or there might be a concern that it might not hit the costing they need. And that's where production would come in. Sometimes production has to be the heavy in the room and say, like, you're, you're never going to get that for $20, like, you know, and like rain on the parade. But we need to hear that. And it's important to have these conversations now, which I know Amy is going to talk about multiple times through this process, because a lot of time is wasted by all teams trying to execute this product that we're never going to be able to afford or that I, as the buyer, didn't like in the first place. You know, so this is a good time. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's like, I guess my my little mantra is like, you can have your no now or you can have it later. And I've been really, <laughs> really fortunate to work with really great teams and partners. And it's it's really collaborative because, you know, your production person maybe is kind of cranky, but, you know, they're not they're not in charge of everything. What? No. What they're in charge of is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being really self-actualized right now. Um you know, ultimately what we want to do is we want to see that designer's vision come to fruition at a price and a quality and a time frame that's going to be beneficial to the buyer and therefore to the brand. So, you know, if it's sketch review and it's this crazy thing and it's got, you know, a ton of fabric yield or the, you know, it's a $98 dress and we need four yards of fabric for it and, uh, and the fabric's $14 a yard. Production would like to tell you right then and there, let's talk about this. How is this actually going to work? Short answer is it's not going to work. So let's impact it now when it's still a sketch before we start the wheels turning with every other team that's got to be involved with us in the process. Yeah, I think that's a really good point too, is like really laying out the expectations and also what's possible as early as possible. Since the first episode of the podcast came out, multiple friends of mine who work in design have said the same thing to me, which is, I had no idea all these components were part of the cost of a product. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I, I, is crazy to me, and I believe that, but I do think there needs to be more education, like, for the design team to understand what's going on as well. Like, they have the best intentions as well. They don't want to design stuff that's never going to happen, right? Yeah, I mean, let's you you don't want to squash the creativity. Um, what you want to do is, you know, make sure everyone's got the tools. And whether or not, I mean, I don't expect anyone who's not in the chair of production to dial down to that level of minutia because we can get real, real detailed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a basic understanding. Obviously, if you know you're a tops designer, you should know the different fabric yield between a, a tank top 
long sleeve, short sleeve crop in, in choosing your fabrics against, you know, what your buyer needs to retail them for. Um, it, it's, it's almost like it's kind of pulling the veil back because it's not that glamorous when it really comes down to it. Right. I mean, it isn't, but I, I also think that good planning can be very glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's what's sexier than than a, a, a full collection that comes in on time and you know to the design aesthetic of of the designer and to the needs of the buyer and then just sells. I mean, yeah, having lived lived and worked in environments where none of those things happen, it sounds very sexy to yeah, me. It's like production <laughs> porn. It's production porn. It is. And then everything delivered five days before the cancel date. Mm-hmm. And everyone was happy. Yes. Um, so, so anyway, now, now that we've all decided like, okay, these are the sketches we want to move forward with. These are the ideas we want to buy into. The design team will create tech packs, and I cannot speak to that too deeply, but I can say basically it's the detailing of all the information the factories will need to create a sample, and then they're going to send them off to the factory. Mm -hmm. So then the factory will make samples based on these specs. Next is sample review, and here buying and design along with production will review the samples and decide what should move forward and what should not. And a lot of drops happen here. Sometimes they happen just because an idea that seems great on paper is actually pretty weird in reality. That happens a lot. Or maybe it's just impossible to hit a price point and execute the product well. I feel like these meetings can get pretty intense and really bogged down in the details. You know, often we'll have someone there trying it on. We can kind of already see what the limitations are going to be there. This is also the kind of meeting where, as we've talked about in previous episodes, we look at it, we're like, this is great we need to take off half that embellishment in order to afford it. So those kinds of changes. Yeah. It can get, it can get a little emotional for sure. It it definitely can. And it's, it's uh, one of those meetings where I feel that my skills as like a diplomat are really (laughs) important. (laughs) There's like a lot of feelings to protect and also, you know, listen to at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, So at this point, buying is ready to commit to the styles they are buying. They will commit to units by color. You know, some of these things they're going to do in multiple colors. Uh, rarely as a buyer do you buy the same number of units in every single color. Like you often have data that shows you the best selling colors historically for your business. And you're going to put a lot more of the units there. Or you might take a gamble and say, well, like Pantone's pushing this color. So that's going to be our biggest buy. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can slice and dice that. And then, you know, production will start to work out final costing and other details with the factory. And then the assistant buyers will issue the orders. Um, and those are called purchase orders. Uh, but I'm probably skip some more stuff in there that you would you would want to happen, Amy. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, and this is really just kind of an ideal example for, you know, company A and like company B would be like, okay, we've got eight other milestones in here. Um, But, you know, I think it's a generally fair overview. And ultimately it's just coming down to, you know, again, like I said, balancing the buyer's needs versus the design and, um, you know, production lending support in all the, all the stages before, we actually do the production production and just making sure that we're hitting all these benchmarks. Right. And it's important to mention that like, okay, so we have placed these orders, but like that's not the end of the story either because there are going to be fittings. There are going to be samples to approve. There might be other crises along the way that require adjustment or 
like me having to run over to Amy's desk to approve a, a fabric swap or, I mean, you know, it's like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, from production's point of view, it's like why, you know, when we made the decision to proceed with a style, why did we decide to send it where we sent it? Yeah. And, you know, and, and in the negotiation to, to make sure, Hey, you know, I know you've got this minimum, but I only want X amount of pieces, but I'm going to buy bigger on this other color. So, you know, let's, let's strike a balance here. A lot of, a lot of back and forth happens with regards to the, the style in the development process before you even get close to going onto the production line. Yeah. That's a really good point that you brought up the, the quantities that we would buy, because often there is a minimum amount you, you have to buy in order to make the product at all. And I mean, in different environments, we have tried everything we could to get around that or reduce it. Uh, you know, Nasty Gal would be one example. Like I, we did all that leather stuff and it was like, we can only buy 50 units. Like how do we get the factory to make 50 units? You know, like there are adjustments like that, you know, that production really has to negotiate on behalf of the buying team. Like I wouldn't be involved with that. I would just say I can only buy 50. What can you do? Yeah. And so that's when the factory might tell you no. And then you're just like, well, that's, that's, that's not the answer that I'm going to settle for. So let's talk about, no. you know, <laughs> no, that's not okay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it would be great if it was like, they were like, no. And they were like, okay, well, that's the end of the story. Let's move on. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, you know, like I was saying earlier, like in the job, you have to be comfortable saying no, but you also have to hear no a lot. And then you just kind of go like, well, that's a non-answer. What am I going to do with that instead? Right, because it wouldn't be acceptable for you to go out to the factory and the factory said no, and you were like, oh, okay, hey, guys, just want to let you all know we're not making that because the factory said no. Like, that would never happen. That would be so unacceptable. Yeah, that's 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 me not doing my job. I might come back to you and say they're going to do it, but it's gonna, there's going to be a surcharge. So, mm-hmm. hey, looking at this one style against the whole collection for the whole delivery, can you take the margin hit? You're not going to hit your goal, but you're going to get the product and you're going to have a complete line. Right. And sometimes that is, that's required to, to tell a marketing story or create a lookbook or, I mean, yeah. there are a lot of reasons why that might happen. It can yeah. be dangerous though, of course, because then you're bringing in product that at full price already isn't very profitable. So that happens more often than I would like it to, but uh, it ideally doesn't happen very often in a good business. Right. Right. And then of course on the factory side, it's kind of like, Hey man, you know, I'm, I only need 50 here, but look at these units I'm doing here. Look what we've done historically. Look what I'm projecting for the future. And, and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, interpersonal negotiations that happens over th- on that side as well. You don't just take what they say at face value. It doesn't matter who they are, what region they're in. You know, if they say no, you're like, eh, that's, you know, let's keep talking. And you kind of have to do a lot of back and forth. I, I prefer to do that and really come with um, more than one option for a solution back to the team to figure out what they can do with it. So like when you would be carrying out those negotiations, would you do that over the phone? Would it be email? Like how does that work? Because you're frequently dealing with factories overseas. Yeah. I mean, I like to cover my ass, so I prefer email. Um, <laughs> Me too. I would say get it in writing always. Yeah. yeah. And, and and that way, you know, it, it there's no, there's a very small margin of room for interpretation. And then um, you know, some, some, some people, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's just a personal preference, uh, prefer to talk over the phone, but you know, while we're on the phone, I'm definitely typing up an email that's recapping to our conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because ultimately, you know, like I said, you got to cover your ass and make sure that 
the way that you're communicating is is really clear because you're maybe not um, more often than not you're not working with a native English speaker. You're working with people mm-hmm. who definitely have uh, an understanding of the language, but you've got to be really clear about what you need. And that's not just for negotiations. That's just kind of every day, all day, every email. It's, it's almost like its own little language. No slang. Don't use slang. You could use a million acronyms though. We have like a whole different, a whole different language. <laughs> that is true. Okay. So, well, let's talk about the manufacturing chain a little bit. Um, like let's pretend we're going to make a snap crotch bodysuit with a graphic print. Just what everyone needs. Everyone wants one. We've never made that before. <laughs> We've never worked on that. And it certainly didn't have lots of elastic strapping or anything like that. And it Oh yes. Totally. It definitely wasn't a thong. No. <laughs> So let's talk about this fictional bodysuit. Yeah, it's a fictional bodysuit that we've never seen before. So first off, we have to get the fabric, right? Yeah. I mean, I think when people think of making stuff, fabric is the first thing that comes to mind. So like, what what is your part of that fabric sourcing? You know, that's really going to depend on the company structure. We've been lucky enough to work uh, at companies with their fabric teams. A lot of times designers bringing it to you is um, either a target or inspiration. And I like to really understand the difference between the two because the target is it must be this. Uh, my more preferred answer is this is the inspiration because that gives me a little <laughs> flexibility. And that's really just coming down to like the content or the weight of it. Um, because again, I, I just want to really front load us to be successful. And uh, and so I can maybe even say at this point, if designs handed me off this fabric, it's a bodysuit. I've got a guy that's been making my bodysuits for years. So there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. I'm sending it to my bodysuit factory. And I'll say, okay, it's, you know, this is my, my fabric inspiration, my target. Cause I know the yield of a bodysuit is let's say I need something that's $3 a meter and mm-hmm. they're going to come back and, and give me options and, and, and buying and design are going to look at them and, and we're going to make a selection. And ultimately, ideally I'm going to get that exact fabric on my first sample, if not, I'm going to take a substitute fabric on the first sample, but I'm going to have my garment initial costing with that target fabric. You also just said something that just occurred to me right now, which is that the fabric is measured in in meters and not yards, like when you go to Joanne. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's so you're working in the Mm -hmm. metric system. Just wanted to call that out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, super fun. Um, As an American, um, it's... It's another challenge. I mean, you know, even going down to tiny little things like, you know, the the size of a button, there's a different language we use for that. Um, size of a zipper is um, thankfully kind of a universal thing. Um, but yeah, it's like if you want to move something down a, a quarter of an inch, you're like, oh, God, I got to tell them in centimeters. So, um, you know, I'll be transparent. Sometimes I just say inch and then they can figure it out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, when you're talking about consumption, yeah, I, I know exactly what, uh, what a consumption of a shirt is for like a men's button down mm-hmm. in, uh, in a woven fabric in yards. But then I have to kind of, you know, go to my cheat sheet and go like, okay, that's this many meters. <laughs> um, so yeah. I bet you have a calculator around a lot too for, for these kinds of things. 
in front of me right now. <laughs> good, good, because there is going to be a lot yeah. of math later in the episode. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's always math. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, this is like a kind of a minor one, but if we wanted to also tie-dye this bodysuit or wash it down to make it softer, uh, would you choose the place where that's going to happen or would the factory be handling that? Like what part – is that like part of the package, I guess, or like how does that work? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of like a good analogy, but ultimately it's kind of like I go to this source for this garment and then with regards to, you know, who sews on the buttons and who does the washing, you know, I need to defer to their network. So it's, uh, is it like a spider web where it kind of spreads out? I don't know. Um, <laughs> 17 years and I can't get a good metaphor going. So uh, I'll circle back if I think of one. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't unless I... I wouldn't. I haven't. Um, I, if if they said, you know, I, if, if all of a sudden my bodysuit guy in this example is like, I've never done a tie dye on a bodysuit. I don't know where to go. Then I've got to, you know, get some boots on the ground and go figure that out. But ultimately, you kind of, it's a leaning tower of relationships. Like <laughs> I, I need, I need this person to to go to their source mm-hmm. because they've got that relationship. And, and ultimately we're just going to say, this is what we'd like it to look like. Right. Right. And you know, you know, my, tar- you know, my target price. So make it happen. That happen, please. So, and then like moving on to trims, I think there's this idea out there and I, I don't know why I'm saying I think that because I know it. I've definitely worked with people who have this idea that if you can dream up an idea, China will just make it for you no problem. It'll just happen instantly, right? Like you can want this specialized print with like anchor buttons and you can see a button, a picture of a button on the internet and be like, this is, this is it. And I know it's a lot. It's that's, well, for one, that's just not true. You, you can't just make up something and make it happen exactly as you envisioned it. Right. But, uh, what's the deal with trims? Like, are there limitations there? Uh, once again, like, are you picking those out? Are the factory, like who's making that decision? Well, when it comes to branded trims, you would normally have a separate supplier for that. And that's really just to protect your brand's integrity mm-hmm. so that you're not just letting, you know, Joe Schmo over here and Jane Schmo over here just kind of run wild and, and put your logo on everything. So it kind of creates a, a control there. When it comes to things that are just like, you know, a basic button or a zipper, I don't know. They're... There is and there isn't limitations. And I know that's a non-answer because I guess my point of view is if we can dream it up in your example, China can make it is like, yeah, let's at least try. However, it doesn't always make sense to do that. If, if you want an anchor button, like you had said, I would rather just say, hey, I'm looking for a button that's, you know, X centimeters high with a gold finish and it's an anchor. And here's some photos of examples and send me some that you can find for me. Right. I'd rather do that than like go into like CAD design and mold fees and like make a button. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I have had uh, vendors say like, hey, I don't want to use your nominated supplier. And that would be the person we chose to provide the branded buttons. They've said like, I don't want to use your nominated uh, supplier. Could I just make them myself? And is there any reason why they would want to do that? Is it just to save money? I mean, it's easier. It's, yeah, it's easier for them. It's easier for them because if you consider like your factory has got relationships with fabric mills and and wash houses and dye houses and trim suppliers. I mean, they're you're really leaning on them to be able to you know 
compile the components of the garment. And so it's almost like you can do it, but not when it comes to my branded trim, right? And so it's really for them, it's a little bit of a workaround. I mean, I've had issues where, not issues, but um, you know, Central American suppliers were required to order, but the trims were manufactured in China. And we're talking about, you know, something as simple as a care content label. And so I was like, okay, well, how can you best replicate it? Because for me with, I mean, we're talking about something that cost a fraction of a cent, but to have it produced in China and shipped to Guatemala and uh, the time that that takes, it, it's not advantageous at that point. But ultimately, yeah, if it's, it's a branded button, I want that button to be made by the supplier. And if the factory doesn't want to order it, then cool story, bro. I I don't know what to tell you. You got to order it. (laughs) Yeah. I've definitely, I mean, in situations in which I've worked for such a small company that I also have to manage all the production, I've definitely been bullied into it because I'm like so fearful that I will lose delivery. (laughs) Well, I mean, but sometimes that's, I mean, sometimes that's the real concern is like, you know, is it ready? Is it ready right now? If I order it today, will they ship it tomorrow? Um, But ultimately it's really just, you know, you got to look out for your brand as much as you value your relationships within your supply chain and how important that is. Ultimately your strongest and most important relationship is to your brand and is to the people who you work alongside within that brand. So if I know that this button has been tested and it's not going to snap and it's not going to break and, um, you know, we need to maintain the integrity and we need to maintain, I don't want all of a sudden to just like, let some guy start making my buttons. And then, uh, you know, now I've got some, maybe some black market branded goods. Yeah. Just hanging out, out somewhere, somewhere. And I do think it's important to call out that something that buyers do actually sometimes do is look at different buttons side by side and approve one. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it really can get that granular. All hail our product developers because our product developers are looking at buttons and zippers and swatches and uh, lab dips. And, uh, you know, that's the unsung heroes of of the internal team. Yes. They're dealing with the really annoying stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. The last thing to talk about, I mean, we're not going to go in t- and get granular about shipping and stuff like that, but like, what about the actual sewing? That's kind of the finale of the production. Yeah. So, you know, I know I just kind of used the term already, but like, I really feel like the sewing are the unsung heroes. And if people really wanted to familiarize themselves with what it looks like, um, you know, Google again is your friend here because this is, it's, it's not what you think about when you think about like grandma sewing a dress for, you know, the sixth grade dance for you. It's like, They've laid out the the fabric spreaders have laid out the fabric. The the guys have put the markers down. They've cut it, and and you might just be sitting there, and your job is to just sew sleeves all day long. That's an important call out because I do think most people would envision that one person sits down and they sew the entire shirt, and then they finish that shirt and they move on to sewing the next shirt. But it's really it's an assembly line. Yes, yes, and it's really kind of when when you're looking at the. The, the more advanced setups, it's really kind of cool because it's like coming on this, like imagine like a dry cleaners when you go to pick up your clothes and it's kind of spinning around. It's like a little basket of stuff and it comes in front of you. And when you've done your thing, then you put it in the basket and it goes around and around and around. And, you know, one day you might be like, oh my God, I'm so tired of sleeves. And then, you know, the next day your manager <laughs> puts you on collars and you're like, yes, hell yes, collars. Um, 
<laughs> what a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, so, I mean, it, like once it's sewn, then it's gotta be, it's gotta be trimmed. It's gotta be inspected. It's gotta be, um, finished, which, you know, hang tags, pressed, folded, put in bags. I mean, there's the amount That's of times. Yeah. The amount of times one garment moves around either a facility or, you know, it goes out for, for dye and wash and comes back. And many, many people have, have worked really hard to make one simple t-shirt, for example. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you, when you start to think about it, that I think a lot of people are envisioning like, oh, someone sewed it. And then maybe someone's thinking that someone put it in the box, but that's just a tiny part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's really nuanced. I mean, with the sewing, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pride. There's a, there's an art and there's a craft to it and there's different machinery. There's different factories for knits versus wovens. There's regions that are better at making things than other regions. And that's just because of the infrastructure. And, um, and there's a lot of pride there. And so it's like here, you know, you'll go into a factory and say like, you know, here's so-and-so, this is my best, you know, this, this person does the, the binding on a trouser, like no one's ever seen before. <laughs> you know, you got, you got to give a lot of credit to that. You do. I mean, I don't know how to sew the binding on a, a trouser, but I'm sure it's impossible because I can barely put a zipper in correctly. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not a sewer for sure. Zippers are so, their own separate animal. <laughs> they are. They are. I'm always yeah. telling yeah. you. Yeah. I, I heard episode one. I, there's a lot of, a lot of issues with zippers. <laughs> okay. So, so now, you know, we're getting this picture of like what's happening and, you know, there's trims to buy and fabric to get and, you know, maybe something has to go out and be washed. So like, how does the money flow here? So like we place the order, what happens next? So my, my quick hit on that one is like the money flows down and out, right? So mm-hmm. it's going to vary by uh, who your vendor is, who your factory is. Um, those terms are kind of interchangeable. But prior to anything happening, prior to anyone thinking about this bodysuit, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've created a, a relationship and there's, there's contracts involved and there's financial reviews. So we have terms, so I might have to, once that purchase order is issued, I might have to make a deposit and they're going to use the, I'm going to send that deposit directly to the factory. The factory is going to use that money to book the fabric. They're going to use that money to book the trims, but you're, you're not issuing a, you're not making it rain. You're not paying the, the die house. You're not paying this. You're not paying that. You're really just kind of trying to keep it centralized. And, and then they're flowing, they're flowing the cash out to, mm-hmm. to, to book your raw materials, to, um, to reserve your space in the production line, to, to pay the workers in the sample room that have been making your samples. So uh, would you expect that you would put out down a deposit for production every time you write an order or just with some vendors or like what is the standard there? with the deposit? I would expect that you would put a deposit down because the exception would be, for example, I had a company that I worked for and a vendor partnership where I knew that I was going to write an order for printed t-shirts every month, at least 100,000 pieces. So at that level of volume, the cash flow is constant. So they've got the cash flow 
coming from me from the last order to kind of front load the new order. But ultimately, you know, if we're talking about imports, and when I say imports, I'm kind of referring more to um, to regions in Asia. I would expect mm-hmm. to put a deposit down, and mm-hmm. and that's really you know a, another department you have to partnership with is is your finance team and make making sure that once that buy plan is received and those purchase orders are issued that that hey person who writes the checks this is how much money I'm going to need this is when I'm going to need it and this is who it's going to go to and so uh, I guess we're seeing like okay so these deposits they actually help the factories get to work on things, right? Because they have to start ordering materials and whatnot. And, you know, they got to pay for that. So what would happen if you canceled the order? We're going to talk later about like large cancellations, but like if, let's just say you placed one order and you placed like a 50% deposit up front. If you canceled that order, do you get that deposit back? No, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't think you should. I don't think you should. I was just wondering. Because if you put a put a deposit down on a wedding venue, you wouldn't expect to get your money back, would you? Well, I mean, because I put this deposit down now, fifty percent is like, ooh, I got some bad terms. <laughs> I mean, I've I've had those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have two. I have two for like new business or smaller businesses. But you know, if you put that deposit down, they're they're buying raw materials with it, right? So I'm not going to get that deposit back because you can't just exchange. You can't. They can't return it. Getting it back is not exactly sending it back, but saying okay. You know what? We overbought. I can't take this top anymore. So, uh, can you hold that fabric because I've got a skirt in mind for that fabric for next season? That was going to be my next question. So, what would happen to the fabric and trim that was already bought? So, you might reuse it, right? You would try. I mean, from like a production point of view, like you absolutely want to try. I'm sure finance is on board with that. You know, design and buying are going to be better adept to saying, you know, that that trend's gone or that color's seasonal <laughs> or that that print yeah. doesn't work. And then you go, okay, well, we're just going to eat that. Maybe if you've got a good relationship, the factory can sell it somewhere and you can recoup a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that that was even a possibility. Yeah. So like if you did decide that like this is a pretty basic fabric, we can use it anytime. Like is is there an expiration date on when you have to use it? Or would they just hold on to it forever? <laughs> Definitely not forever. I mean, you know, we're, especially we're talking about like natural fibers, mm-hmm. you know, and this is why like fabrics are on rolls and not folded because you don't want the, the, the fibers to kind of, you know, lay there pressed down. Fabric will break down over time. Um, the expiration is less about the fabric because it's not like, you know, a turn up that you forgot about in your refrigerator. It's about like, how much of it is there and where is it being stored and what's your relationship and are they willing to hold it? Totally. I did have at one point at one of my jobs, I had to do a cancellation and there was liability fabric. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And they were willing to hold it, but we had to pay a storage fee. Mm-hmm. So ultimately it was like, okay, we've this lights a fire under us. We have to use this very soon. Yeah. And, and that's the reason they want to give you a fee because they don't actually want to store it. I mean, a, a factory is not a warehouse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it just blew my mind. <laughs> you know, but, but like you think about it, like you're not, you're not, your, your factory is kind of calibrated to the a volume of production. And, mm-hmm. and if it's, got huge volume, then there's like, you know, production lines everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a recession and, and production is lower. They're going to move. They're literally going to pick up and move 
from full capacity to half capacity and then try to rent out that other space. Like you're not going to ever go into a factory and be like, wow, it's really spacious in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here's, not- here's, here, yeah, it's not like a side game they're playing where they're like, here's all the money we're making from all our accounts that we're storing their fabric. Yeah. Here's our storage unit area. It's off to the side. <laughs> you're in unit B. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to be real. Like, yeah. And I've, and I've realized too, like there's been times where I'm like, well, I can't, I can't reuse this fabric. I've already paid for it. I don't want to pay to store it. Put it in the container in the next ocean shipment and I'll, I'll put it in my warehouse because I actually do have a little bit of room here. Oh, wow. Interesting. Because I have been in situations where there have been rolls of fabric like that hanging yeah. out just like for no yeah. reason. That's liability. It's like, you know, maybe more like, like, yeah, bring it over here and I'll figure out what to do with it. But then it's just like, it's just going to collect dust. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. get used. <laughs> yeah. It, it's tablecloths for the next company potluck. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so. I mean, you ultimately, as the production person, you're choosing what factory is going to execute a style. So how do you choose who you'll work with? Well, I mean, on a style level, you're going to allocate it out based on who who can make it. And that's really considering um, the the strengths of the supplier, um, the region. You know, some, some regions are more adept at um, certain products. They have specialties. And then the time and the cost. Um, it's, 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 it's really nuanced, but it's kind of like, I know that if I'm going to make a, a knit tee that I have some trade agreements that make it more preferential and I'm going to place that over there rather than in China, or I want to do a really nice uh, men's suiting shirt. So I think Turkey's a great, ex- you know, Turkey's a great region for that kind of thing. So it's really just kind of knowing your shit, knowing what it is, um, when you need it, how much you can pay for it, what a cost over there, and and choosing wisely. And you don't always choose wisely. But <laughs> sometimes you go, I'm going to try. I, I know this guy can do it, and I think this guy can do it. So yeah. you know, you might yeah. you might send it out to a couple people. And then you know, ultimately, you know, there's like the, the human component to it, right? Like you you want to work with the people that you've worked with in the past successfully the people that you know, the factories that you've visited that you know are, you know, within compliance, the relationships that you have. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that I can at this point kind of reach out to people and say, hey, I'm doing this small thing, but we had a good situation here. Would you consider doing this? And and that kind of gives me a little leverage against the the normal minimum. When you first started out, uh, how, like, how did you learn what factories to work with? It's not like you walked in that day and like had all these contacts. Like, how does that happen? Oh, full disclosure, and I hope my old boss is not listening. But I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing for the first few years. I was just like, okay, fine, um, fake it till you make it. It's, it's really about just being willing to kind of listen and learn, and then you can read up on a lot of things. And also, too, like on a consumer level check the tags. Mm. Everything that, everything that we have here is, is, is got, you know, country of origin on it and, and you'll see different regions and there's always a reason for it. How much transparency into the factory conditions do you have? Cause I know that's something 
that people are probably thinking right now while they're listening to this. Like you already are picking your factories based on like what they can do and how well they do it and hitting that price point. But you did mention like you kind of prefer the factories you visited. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I would say I prefer the factories that I visited, but there's also some really good strongholds in place with third-party auditors that can come in and give that factory a certification. So with that, you know, I do expect a lot of transparency. I think as much as, as much as possible within the factory itself, this audit's going to come in and they're going to confirm that the, the workers are being paid a fair wage, their conditions are safe, many, many different variables, how, you know, how many doors are there? Uh, you know, how high is the ceiling? Like it really, I mean, it's, it's crazy. They go in there and they spend days and days and days and they, they give you this audit. And, um, if you're working with a factory that has that audit, you can feel relatively confident that, that everything is on the up and up. That's my factory though. When it comes to the fabric mill or the dye house, I don't have that same level of transparency. And, I can request that, but you know, a, a fabric mill is is not industry standard to have that level of compliance. Oh, that's so interesting! Like that's surprising, I guess. You know, because that's such an important piece. Yeah, you kind of imagine like reaching out and shaking someone's hand. Like I'm shaking that guy's hand, right? And I'm working with this 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 uh, merchandiser at the factory, and I want their reports and their audits, and then they need to be working with all of their partners in a in a ethical business way. Mm -hmm. So you're basically trusting them to make the right decisions. You're trusting them. Um, you know, especially when we're talking about an international scale, it's very hard. Big companies, small companies. I mean, it's all over the news right now with large companies that really attest if you have that amount of resources and, and you don't, you know, through, go through your entire supply chain. I can't control, you know, I just picked the button off the, off the card that you sent me. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so is, is it the brand's responsibility to, to understand that, you know, who made that button? What are the working conditions there? Or are, are we more concerned with like our sample room and our, our partners that are, you know, cut, sewing, finishing, packing and shipping, you know, doing the bulk of the work? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really important call out that like, you know, we're picking the button or the fabric and we, you know, we don't know what's happening at the button factory or the fabric factory because we're just working on the garment factory. And I think when, I mean, you and I kind of touched on this when we were talking on the phone yesterday, like when there are these big like exposés about XYZ brand having these conditions in their factories. I mean, to be honest, like often the brand is completely unaware of that. Like sometimes the brands don't even know that their product is being made in that factory because it may have been subcontracted out or like it even seems that often, uh, they they just don't know that they even worked with that person, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's like your your brand, the brand, whatever it is, whatever commodity it is. I mean, you definitely want to know who you're working with. You you want audits, you want inspections. Even if I go there myself, I, I would still like to see reports from other brands mm -hmm. and 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 this third party agency as much as information as I can get. So a brand's going to know like, okay, I've been there. I've seen the reports, blah, blah, blah. But a brand's not going to follow it down to the level of detail of who, what the working conditions are at the place that's completely removed from the process where the button was made. Yeah. Or like the, the boxes came from there or something. 
Exactly. Exactly. So ultimately it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, as much as you want your brand to be aware and informed, it's going to come down to that individual country to, to be on top of their, their laws and their regulations and their workers' rights. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's totally true. And that seems to be part of the problem whenever these issues arise. It's like why, like even, you know, recently there's been all this stuff in the news with Boohoo and the conditions in some of their domestic factories in the UK. And I I would ask myself, like, why isn't the UK watching these factories more closely? I mean, I also would say Boohoo is probably pressing those factories for pricing that is just not achievable domestically. And therefore, that's part of the other problem, like the factories making promises they can't keep because they want that business or they need that business. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, as a consumer, you can say, well, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, this is not above board and I'm going to boycott this brand and I'm going to, you know, make noise about it. But, you know, making noise until legislation is is really also, it goes hand in hand. It does. It does. And also saying like to yourself, maybe if I didn't have to buy an $8 bathing suit or maybe if I weren't opting to buy an $8 bathing suit, maybe conditions would be a little bit better. Yeah. You know, like there are many ways in which we as the individual can be responsible and accountable. Absolutely. So, okay, let's say you've had a bad experience with a factory. I mean, I, like, I'm not going to lie. I've, I've seen some really disastrous shipments come in. I cited another episode, a cape that came in glued together rather than sewn. And uh, what if you wanted to break up with that factory? Like, what if you're just like, that's it? Like, everything's late. Everything is messed up. Nothing is fitting properly. Like, it's it's just a nightmare. Like, how would you do that? (laughs) And what what issues would finally push you to do that? I think – I mean, how you would do that is just, um, you know, within that order that you received that was unsellable, um, you'd hope to, you know, charge back and have some financial recourse and you sever the relationship. It's pretty cut and dry in that regard. Um, why you, why we do that is, is more about, uh, you know, kind of the three pillars is the quality, the cost and the delivery, um, cost being a little less, of an issue from my point of view, because I've already committed to a cost when I wrote you the order. Um, um, but if I really needed, we had a great long relationship and I really needed to get this one product category down and you just couldn't help me out, then I would have to find a way to move it to somewhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. quality, you know, shit happens. So, um, you'd want to have a, 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 it wouldn't be one and done. I mean, if it was like completely awful, you ordered a shirt and you got a bottom instead, you know, like, okay, what's happening here? <laughs> well, um, I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 you're right there. Like I've had, uh, product, like not production partners, but like manufacturing partners that have just really blown it on a style. But I mean, that's not, that's not a, a time to break up. Like it happens, you know? Yeah. Like what's the thing like online that's like, uh, what you ordered versus what you got, you know, um, (laughs) you definitely want, I think from my point of view, if you have a a relationship and you've been working together, things are going to happen, right? Your, your quality control team is going to be like, this top is a quarter inch short. The tolerance is an eighth of an inch. And you're like, now we're splitting hairs over the difference of an eighth of an inch. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I've so, been on those emails. <laughs> yeah. You gotta be like, if it's consistent, you know, and, uh-huh. and ultimately this is where you want to be able to have a diverse sourcing base, because if all of a sudden I was relying on this vendor for my, you know, 
cute little skirts and, and they're late. They're late every single time. And I can't keep, you know, they're airing it in. They're trying to make it happen. But like, I really, this is not a good business model. So I've got to have someone um, in the wings ready to pick that up. Mm-hmm. It happens all yeah, that, the time. You know, yeah. if you're elevating your product, you're like, yeah, this, this factory has got a better make or trends change. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's true, some, some factory in some region is really great at something and, and they're just banging it out for you year after year. And then the trend totally pivots, then, then you move. Mm-hmm. That's gotta be a hard conversation to have. If it's been years long, I, I mean, I, I've, I've witnessed some of these, but it's, it's painful. Some of it, it's like, you know, you know what I'm telling you? Like, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not me. It's you. <laughs> How often do you get to say that? I mean, I will say like the times I've had to break up with a vendor have been few and far between, but they have been just as terrible as breaking up with a boyfriend, if not worse, in certain regards. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty rough. Yeah. You just don't fall for the sunken cost fallacy. You're not like, okay, this is a longstanding relationship. I've got to salvage it. It's kind of like, can you salvage it? Like, yo, your, your skirts are late month after month. They're not lining up to the dresses and the tops and I can't get it on the sales floor and you can't keep putting it on a plane to save the day. You have just as much time to make this product as everyone else has been given. Mm-hmm. This is an issue at the factory level. I have to move on and find another source for this. I mean, I think I'm going to, if I ever need to break up with someone again, I'm just going to hire you to do it. I think you're really good at identifying the problems in the relationship <laughs> yeah. in a very straightforward way. Yeah. The, ultimately, <laughs> like the, the business is yours to lose. <laughs> yeah, right? totally. Yeah, it is. I set you up, you know, you, you provide as much as you can to facilitate, um, you know, a solid delivery. And if, if you're late, if it's shit quality, if if you're price gouging me and someone's, you know, offering me a better deal, then you got to go. It's business. You got to go. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, now we're going to get to one of the harder parts of your job. I feel like, I mean, might be wrong. It's one of the harder parts of my job as a buyer, which is what are the ways in which we, like, we as in like me, the buyer and you in production work together to meet the ever decreasing costs that were that are being dictated by our margin targets and whatever our buying strategy is and what our customers willing to pay. Like, I know you have strong feelings about this. So why don't you, <laughs> you have a saying, you have a catchphrase. I wish you could see my face right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. The saying here, and this is not, this is not mine. This, this, this goes across a lot of industries and I had a fabulous boss and she had this little chart on, on the bulletin board. And I've seen this in, in any kind of high level executive production person's office, you can have it cheap, fast or good, but you can only pick two. And I mean, that, that nails it. Like that aligns with what we've even talked about in our previous episodes about, you know, the cost of airing things in because you want to have it fast. Well, there you go. And now it's not going to be cheap or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're still going to get it cheaply, but then it's going to be poorly sewn. And so it's not going to be good. Every job I have should have that hanging up on the wall somewhere for everyone to see. <laughs> so, okay. So we've talked a little bit about in previous episodes about the things that we might try to attack to bring down the cost. So for you as a production person who's really like steering that process and those negotiations, what's the first part of the garment you would change to hit The most price? obvious part is the fabric. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, yeah makes sense. the fabric because, you know, 
you're going to find kind of a, you're going to plateau with like what we refer to as the cut and make, which is literally the cost to cut. And so it's, it's not going to be that different from, uh, let's use China example, you know, factory over here versus factory over here, you know, cut and make is kind of, you're going to plateau, but maybe it's not a $14 meter fabric and maybe it's $11 a meter. And that's why, you know, going back to what we we're talking about earlier, I'd like to be able to involve, be involved in the process as early as possible so that we can suss that out because it, it really sucks being in, in the room mm-hmm. and everyone's in love with it. And, you know, it looks great on the fit model and the buyer's like falling in love with it. And then you're telling, you know, you're, you're talking with your, your <laughs> eyes, you're using nonverbal communication, like, yo, look at that spreadsheet because you can't afford it. So the, the fabric is going to be the most obvious thing. And, and sometimes it's really a tiny little switch, like the difference between an import duty on something that's majority cotton or fully cotton versus synthetic or majority synthetic is, is synthetic is double the price to import. Interesting. So even though the fabric can be cheaper, the duty is more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. So if you ever like are looking at a tag and it's like 51% cotton and 49% poly, it's like, you know, they just saved half the duty rate by not interchanging those two numbers. Once again, it always comes down to these like cents. Yes. It's just a bunch of spreadsheets all day, every day. Uh, but it's good to know because like if you if you change the fabric, so it's like, okay, I, I want to maintain the design integrity. Buying really wants this style. You know, how are we going to make this happen? Uh, let's look at the fabric first. And we don't want to go from, you know, a maxi to a mini, but there's little tweaks we can make here and there potentially. If it's stripes or a print, you know, are we dictating that the pocket on the shirt pattern lines up exactly, or are we going to have a little bit of flexibility? Because that's going to change how much fabric is being used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How much how much attention they're giving it on the sewing line? I mean, there's a, a lot of different options and opportunities with regards to the fabric. So that would probably be the first place you would go. Would you do anything with the trims if you still weren't getting there cost-wise? Yeah. I mean, trims kind of, uh, you know, they definitely play a role, but it's it's kind of nominal. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily say, um, you know, I want to take off the zipper because how are you going to get into this? You know, now it's going to be buttons. You know, sometimes it's a trade-off because it's like, okay, maybe maybe I said I needed a YKK zipper, but okay, it's a $48 blouse and maybe we can just use something that they have source locally and I can save a dollar there. I don't have to change my fabric anymore. Mm-hmm. Just ultimately, like these are all the things I'd want to address up front. I mean, if you're bringing me like a design that's got, you know, a bunch of non-functional decorative zippers, obviously I'm not going to say it's got to be a high quality functioning zipper. Um, but if you're like, you know, I'm, the zippers, this dress is going to be, you know, floor length and it's going to have a, you know, three foot zipper. It's like, uh, is it really though? Cause it's going to be $98 and your fabric is $8 a meter. So, you know, okay. I'm laughing cause I've definitely been in that yeah. meeting with you <laughs> with the zipper being like $15. Yeah. I, think I, I think I have that dress. <laughs> um, so would you ever, so if you'd reached a point where you like had substituted the fabric to the best of your ability and you changed out some trims, but you still weren't hitting the price point, would you ever change factories? Oh, that's like my worst 
at that's this point. the worst case scenario, right? Because you've gone through this whole process. And so for me, the issue is kind of like, okay, well, if I'm not exactly sure, you know, this is a totally different type of garment, or this is a fabric or a factory I don't have a lot of experience with, because I've done all kinds of different products and it's not interchangeable. I'd want a flash cost. If I wasn't exactly sure, if I didn't have an idea of what the supplier was going to charge me for this, I'd want to, at the early stages, back when we talked about you know the tech pack being completed, I'd want to send that out and say, give me a flash cost. My fabric is you know $7 a meter. Tell me what you think. Because changing factories is, barring like quality issues, changing factories is just basically your worst case scenario because you're not going to get it delivered on time. You're going to have to move it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean that's I, I that's not even something I'd thought of, but that's true. It would, you'd probably yeah. lose at least a month there. It would seem like in the you would process. be lucky. You, yeah, you'd be. I mean, you're basically having to start from scratch somewhere else. So this is really kind of like a big fuck up um, on your allocation. We've made these changes, like you and I. Like I'm the buyer, and you're my production manager, and we've talked this all through. But we've we've kind of forgotten someone important here, which is the designer. <laughs> So how – it just seems like it would be difficult to reduce the cost of something while also meeting the designer's vision, kind of kind of depending who your designer is. And, you know, if they've been in the game for a long time, they're probably like, yeah, just change it, whatever, I know. But, uh, you know, you might also have a designer that's come from a more premium background who wouldn't understand that this need, this dress needs to be $18 or something. Like, what what do you do there? How do you make that happen? Well, I think that actually the the production and design dynamic is the most interesting part of the whole entire job for me um, because it's really kind of – it's my opportunity to be creative in, in kind of forming solutions and not having to be so creative that I have to design the garment. So for me, that's just like I, – I love that balance because you always want to make sure that – your, your team cross-functionally, and that includes your buyers and your tech and especially your designer, that you're all on the same team and that you really want to give them what they envision, but sometimes there's compromise. So it's really just trying to find the way to find solutions and to work together to figure it out. I mean, the amount of times a designer has told me no, I mean, I can't even count because that's that's their job is to maintain that design integrity. They've got a vision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough. It's, it's tough. So, okay, let's say we've like switched out all of our fabrics and trims, and you know we've gone as low as we can go, and we know that we don't want to change the factory because it would lose time. So our only option is we have to make it work with this factory. Do you risk anything by pushing that factory to come in at an even cheaper cost? Because I've definitely been in that situation where I don't have a production team, so I have to handle those logistics myself. And I'm pushing like, no, it needs to be a dollar cheaper. It needs to come down. It needs to come down. And it feels like a risky situation to me. Yeah. I mean, on a personal level, you know, you're risking a lot of your credibility um, because a lot of times, you know, half of half of why you pay somebody with a certain level of experience is because they have those established relationships. And so I guess it really just, you know, we talk in five cents here because we're not going to have to have a big conversation. I'm going to tell you I need five cents or you, you get nothing. Right. And it's, it's five cents. So they're going to figure it out 
product. Maybe mm-hmm. the shipping box is going to be a little thinner um, because obviously they've got to recoup some costs too. But you know, long term, you're not you, you risk everything by, by pushing the factory to come in at a cheaper cost. You risk the quality. Yeah, I'm I'm sure in a multitude of ways. You know, I, I heard I heard you talking on episode one. Um, about, you know, the, the t-shirts that kind of like torque after a couple washes and all of a sudden the side seam is like a diagonal front seam. Um, mm-hmm. knit, knit jersey is a fabric that needs time to lay there and rest and kind of, you know, knit jersey always wants to go back to its original state. So you need it cheaper and it's like, okay, well, I don't have time to give you the, the, the table to lay this fabric on. So I'm going to lay this fabric for, you know, overnight and then we're going to cut it tomorrow and we're going to sew it. I don't have time. I had allocated for you, you know, three days worth of sewing for this one style, but now I'm just going to push through and we're going to get done in, you know, one and a half days or one day because this other, uh, other orders coming in and they're going to, they're paying me properly. I mean, you risk everything. And if you push and you push your, your quality is going to suffer, your customer is going to suffer. And ultimately, you know, you'll give me the price, a few times, but I would fully expect that if I just squeezed you for, for a season, that next season, all your quotes would consider your loss. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's not a, a good idea. You're going to pay for it down the road in a multitude of So many ways. And I just rather would be transparent and it just comes down to, to smart sourcing and allocation and, um, yeah, being transparent. Like I, I will happily send you a tech pack and let you know what my target cost is. I'm probably going to inflate it a little bit unless, <laughs> I mean, everybody does long-term relationship. Right. I'll tell you exactly where I need to come. And if you can, you yeah. can hit it and I've got five styles that I'm sending to you and you can hit it on, you know, all five styles and maybe they make a little bit more on style one than they do on style four, you know, ultimately it, it can balance itself out. So um, we've talked a little bit about like how, you know, making some changes, especially changing the partner can really affect the timeline. And I think there are a lot of other pieces in there that can make a delivery late. So what about when you're dealing with like really tight turnaround product, like the fastest fashion? Um, I mean, because this is kind of the new normal, like everybody's figuring out how they can write their order one month before delivery. So like, what do you, what do you do to make that happen? Or what, if someone gave you that challenge, what would you do? I mean, I guess we're going back to fabric again, right? Um, <laughs> if, if you're fabric is important in fabric is life. Um, that's my next tattoo. Um, so I guess, um, it really comes down to it because, yeah, if you're saying like, hey, Amy, I've got a slot to fill and I need this right now. If there's fabric sitting there somewhere and you have some seasonal colors as a buyer and I'm showing you the color card, I'm always going to have black and white and there might be, you know, some seasonal colors on there. If you could please just as a buyer, Amanda, just pick one of these fabrics, <laughs> then <laughs> I think I think I'm having deja vu. I'm yeah. Deja vu right Pick now. one. Um, <laughs> because you know what? That's a huge component and we're done. Because I've told this guy, right. like, I've told the factory, like, please, dude, I just, I need to make, you know, 300 of this top because we had a, a late, we have a late delivery or we have, you know, whatever reason, you know, we had to drop a style. We've got this gap to fill. Um, it's, it's mm-hmm. not the, it's not easy, but it's, it's, it's also kind of sloppy. 
Mm-hmm. It's you. You have to For rush. Sure. You have to rush through every stage. So tight turnaround is, you know, as you see in fast fashion, it's you're creating disposable clothing. Mm-hmm. It's going to mm-hmm. last you a few washes, but to your to your uh, redditor's um, question, you know, the fabric is going to be thinner. It's 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 going to not last you as long. But, you know, from like a pure production point of view, if I can get you that fabric, then I can do everything. I'm, I'm saving 30 days. If I can make it here in the United States or in um, Central or South America, you know, I can I can get it to you faster than I could for China. Maybe because I have North and mm-hmm. Central American trade agreements, I don't pay duty. So now I can afford to ship it via plane instead of boat. Um, mm-hmm. It's there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's like it's like all a yes. puzzle, and you have to fit all the pieces together. It seems like so when you talk about stock fabric, I mean I know what you're talking about there, but just for everybody who's listening, like what is stock fabric? Does it already exist? Is it just hanging out somewhere in storage? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's 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 fabric mills that exist to to supply this demand. Where it's like okay, it's it's a jersey, and they've done their trend and color research, and you know I've actually had a lot of success with you know sending out an inspirational fabric to my merchandiser at the factory, and they went out to their fabric mill, and it was a high end fabric, and they found like a beautiful duplicate for it that was just already sitting there. Sometimes it's like okay, they might need a little bit of time because they don't have enough supply for you. So they might need to knit it or weave it. Um, but yeah, it's basically a giant fabric store, <laughs> but it's, it's, but it's not just one thing, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's mills and there's fabric businesses that exist for the sole purpose. That's so interesting. I mean, I guess there's probably been a lot of opportunity in that area as, you know, fashion has gotten faster. Absolutely. Because yes, it is, it is the supply feeding the demand and the demand is not going to go away. So rushing through something like this, you know, for the purpose of turning it around faster to get it onto the sales floor, like does, does sort of demanding that or executing that, does that impact pricing or your vendor relationships at all? Or are they expecting it? The vendors that are set up to produce it are absolutely expecting it and they want that kind of business. You know, that kind of goes back to the the cheap, fast and good. You can have it fast and you can have it cheap. Absolutely. There's, there's complete (laughs) business models that exist around that, that methodology. They're not going to be able to do, you know, high construction or, you know, you might have to, you know, compromise a little bit on, you know, the types of seams, um, or the fit a little bit, but it exists. It exists for a reason. And then if you want something that's good or better, you should know enough to not ask that guy to make that thing for you. (laughs) <laughs> once again i'm sure that's something you learn with experience yeah, yeah 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 it's it's not fun to insult your partners but um <laughs> you know I, I i can't do it for you but i can refer you to someone who can i mean it's it's right it's completely different business models right i mean it is it is and i i do think that i mean i think you mentioned this earlier or maybe when we were on the phone that a lot of non what we think of not fast fashion retailers are having to start to adapt yeah this sort of i don't know like process and so now they're dipping their toe in it they're like also demanding faster turnaround uh 
definitely, I, I mean, I, I can say that in the past few years of my career, I have been placing more and more receipts within 60 days of delivery. So <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's unfortunately becoming even more popular, which, I mean, to go back to what you were saying, if you can only get it, if it's cheap, fast and good, and you can only get two of those, the faster we push all the, the retailers to do this, the less good our clothes are going to be. It seems like, or more expensive, I guess it could become, you could pick one. Yeah. And I think too, that it's not just like, it's not as simple as just thinking about it in terms of the, the fast aspect as being on the actual production cut and sew line. It's also fast in everything that happens before that. You know, you're not giving, you know, design time to think about a comprehensive collection that tells a story. Um, buying is having to be really reactive to what's happening on the sales floor and maybe not necessarily what you'd prefer, which is last year's same time historical data. Yeah, I think that's a really good call out. And I think kind of randomly pulling stuff together towards the end is also probably impacting the way stores look because the merchandising might not be as tight because it's the stories aren't as cohesive. They There hasn't been a long view there strategically. It's just like we could get the shirt. It seemed like it would work. We're going to move on to something that is ripped from the headlines, which is the hashtag pay up movement. And for listeners who haven't heard us talk about this in the past, this has been going viral all over social media. And it basically, it started with retailers canceling on vendors in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, just you know, canceling on goods that may have even already been made. And most certainly, if they haven't been made yet, based on our conversations here with Amy, you know that the trims and fabric were already purchased. So I, I've been kind of asking everybody this, Amy, because we all see cancellations at, like the different end or different side of cancellations based on our jobs. How often do you cancel on vendors and why might you normally do that? Someone fucked up somewhere. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that's you know, ultimately the, the primary reason would be the quality. If, if, if we had gone through this process mm-hmm. together and um, there was alignment on the expectation of what it's supposed to look like and then it comes in and it does not look like that... Um, you can't sell it. You know, you've got, you've got to think about your brand integrity. You don't even want it on the sales floor discounted. Um, so that would be the primary reason. Um, you know, late goods, uh, it'd have to be really late to be canceled. Otherwise you might give an extension with a discount. You know, you're not going to cancel on because of cost reasons because you've already established all of that earlier. Um, but, you know, canceling on finished goods that are first quality is like completely unethical. I, I mean, I 100% agree. I, so in that situation, if you've canceled on your vendor on something that's already done, first off, like what are they going to do with that stuff? That's a great question. So for me, it's like if it's first quality. Meaning mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah, if it can go on the sales floor and yeah. deliver it on time why am I canceling this? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've both worked in situations where we would have to cancel. Like, I mean, I think it's, it's best to let's just pretend we're having this conversation because it's coronavirus, but I have definitely worked in situations where I had to cancel because the business I was working for was having sales issues or, uh, cash flow problems. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, 
all the things that could happen. So yeah, like what would happen to that stuff? Like could they would they could they or would they resell it? I mean, I know technically they shouldn't be because it's exclusive to your brand, but would they still sell it? Like what happens to yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to, you know, a swap meet or a night market or it's going somewhere because you've canceled it. You refuse to pay for it. I, I've got to recoup some I'm 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 speaking as the factory. I've got to recoup some cost. Right. I mean, I think it would be crazy to expect that they would just be like, okay, and then they would just go out and set it on fire in the yard and then it would be gone. Like that would be crazy. Yes. That's absolutely not what's going to happen. And if, if you say like set it on fire in the yard and send me pics, like they're just going to take that, um, liability, <laughs> that liability fabric that you didn't pay for, um, that's been on the shelf uh-huh. for a year and they'll go burn that and send you that picture. There are a lot of ramifications for the vendor here. Like one is that like they made this product and now they're going to not going to get paid for it. But what else is going to happen to them? And my second question there is, what's going to happen to all the suppliers who are a part of making that They're garment? not going to get paid. I mean, you know, if, if I'm canceling a big order and I've got no reason for it, then they have no reason to to accept, you know, my next tech pack. What's what's the incentive there? Because I've already I've already exercised uneth- unethical business practices. Right. If, if right. we're talking about goods that were completely able to be sold and I just refused to I refused to take them I refused to pay for them they have no responsibility they have no obligation to work with me and they're they're they can't they have to try to recoup the cost that's why I'm you know making this kind of night market sales uh, swap meet joke but their workers need to be paid their their suppliers need to be paid it seems like also you know so so the the people who sewed it and worked in the actual factory are not going to get paid in this situation, but neither are the people who work at the fabric mill or the button factory or the wash house. Right. So it's it's a lot mm-hmm. more people than you might imagine that aren't getting paid. So okay, so now like let's talk about the coronavirus mega cancellation environment because I can tell you that every one of my friends who works in the fashion industry in any way, whether they are own a brand themselves, they work in production, they're a designer, they're a buyer, they're a sales rep and for a wholesaler, whatever. All of them, there's just been cancellations everywhere. Everything's canceled. What do you, what do you think about that? I know this is a complicated situation because, and this is for the listeners, basically brands are canceling stuff because they're losing a lot of sales. So like they, one, are going to have cash flow issues paying for this new stuff, but also they're already sitting on the inventory that they couldn't sell for all the months that the store was closed. So they don't need more inventory on top of that. Although at the same time, they kind of run this risk of trying to sell a spring clothes in fall or something like that. I don't, I don't, that's, that's a whole <laughs> other thing. But what do you think in an ideal world, what would have happened here? That's, this is incredibly tough because, um, you know, there's the ethics of it, and then there there is the legalities of it. Looking at it from a practical business point of view, when you're entering in this uh, brand and vendor relationship, more often than not, you have contracts, and and that stipulates kind of the parameters and terms under which cancellations are possible and acceptable. And there's a mutual agreement that is reached, and then so there's what's referred to as a greater force clause. And so that's something that's legally an unforeseen circumstance that would prevent someone from fulfilling a contract. It's like an, an act of God kind of yeah, situation. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's it's yeah. recognized internationally. I mean, I've had this situation where, you know, it's 
monsoon season in India and we want leather goods, but you know, the, they can't tan the hides because they can't dry them. And so I need to give you an extension. Mm -hmm. This happened while we were working together, actually. Yeah. (laughs) You know, things like this happen. So, uh, you know, COVID's really kind of put an interesting spin on things because as you were saying, stores were closed. And not only that, I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, retail is direct to consumer. And I don't know about you, but I've been sitting at home and I just changed from like daytime to evening time jammies. I don't need to buy clothes right now. I mean, it's it's <laughs> historically times of recession. Um, apparel retail is the hardest hit, right? So mm-hmm. what do you do as a retail and how do you mitigate your risk? Because I'd like to keep my brick and mortar store. I'd like to keep my online store active. I'd like to, you know, keep my staff employed. But maybe I've booked orders out for months and months and I've only bought the fabric. So I think that's okay. Okay. Sorry, dude. I thought I was going to need to make these clothes, but I'm not going to have a need for them. So I'm canceling the order at this point. The fabric is just sitting there. Put that roll on the shelf with my other ones and I'll keep paying for that storage or, you know, whatever. Businesses have to react just the same way that the consumers have to react. Right, right. And I think, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about how this sort of like social media pileup culture on issues like this Mm -hmm. is a little like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, myopic or naive, but like... I've, I've said this before, like I've been in a role where I've had to cancel a lot on a brand or not on a brand, but like on vendors and manufacturing partners because we were just bleeding money as a company. And basically how I had to look at it was like every time I cancel an order, that's maybe another paycheck I'm going to get. <laughs> like the reality is that people here, I mean, people here yeah. are losing jobs, have lost jobs. I've been on furlough for almost four months now. But on top of that, like if, if, these brands maybe would have had to pay for all these canceled orders and accept them. They might have had to lay off even more people because I think if if you haven't been noticing lately, and I've said this before, brands that we think of that are just raking in the dough are actually barely hanging on by a thread. And that's why we're seeing all these bankruptcies right now and will see more. They're overextended and they don't have a lot of disposable money to just bring in products that they're not going to be able to sell. But at the same time, like then you're canceling and people aren't getting paid. And so now people overseas aren't getting paid. And I mean, I don't think that me getting paid is any more important than someone in China getting paid. So like, what do you do? Yeah, it, it creates a, a huge ethical and moral dilemma, right? Because if, if I'm right. just, you know, just the regular old shopper and I'm participating in, you know, the movement, I think it's it's well intended, but maybe not complete because how is the person going to support the movement, right? We can call out these brands, but are we going to go shopping Mm -hmm. online? Is the consumer furloughed? Is the consumer having to, you know, make concessions in their own life? I mean, there's so many things that come into play here and, and, and it just kind of all, it's very complicated and and it trickles down because you're right. A brand that might seem like they're hugely profitable, even if they are, there's still a margin. There's still, there's still operating cost. And so if I don't, if, if a brand can't open their retail spaces or the retail spaces that their clothing is placed in are not open, there's the overhead of the rent. There's, uh, you know, the workers, there's mm-hmm. everything. I mean, 
it, it has to, something has to happen somewhere. Right. And that's why, that's why I've been really hesitant to say like, oh, you should go out and boycott these brands who canceled orders because that, that, it, I mean, it, that just makes the problem worse. And I don't think that these brands were making these decisions lightly. Absolutely not. And I think the, the actual opportunity is really kind of shining the light on, you know, what does fair wage look like? What does a living wage look like? And that's a completely separate issue than just, can I cancel this order? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any, uh, any advice for people about like what you think they should be doing in terms of the situation? Like, do you, do you think that, do you think that brand, like the, the companies here in the U S should have reinstated those orders? Do you think that consumers need to stop being angry? (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Like, is there any, I feel like it's such a complicated situation that there's no easy answer here. And I, for me, as a consumer, it's really hard to imagine what my action is there unless like you wanted to go super capitalist and be like, well, you need to go out and buy a lot of stuff from these brands or something. Yeah, because you could totally go out and buy all this stuff, right? But then, mm-hmm. you know, again, are we are we all collectively in an income space that that, that makes sense? And right, you know, right. are you you buying it and, and then, you know, you know, wear it in your backyard right now? I don't know. Um <laughs> But you know, I think this is this is really a pivotal point. And so, you know, on the consumer level, I would just kind of urge people to direct their energy towards that kind of advocacy, making making changes on you know a base level to to salary. What is what does the living wage look like? Because you know, a lot of the pay up movement is like you canceled the order now, the the the, the women in the sewing line aren't going to get paid, and now they can't eat. You know, is that the consumer's responsibility? I mean, I, I do think that, you know, we as a world have a lot of work to do around identifying the living wage and making sure everybody gets that because we have yeah. a lot of people in the United States who weren't getting that. And I mean, I could go on about that for hours. I get so angry when people on the internet are angry about some people making more money on unemployment mm-hmm. than they did before. I'm like, who cares? Guess yeah. what? They're not getting rich. They're still only making probably like, oh, I don't know, $2,000 a month. Yeah. Like leave them alone. <laughs> like, yeah. Just go away. I think, I think, <laughs> I think with regards to the actual like concept of pay up, you know, it's, it's, you cannot focus on that one area. Everyone's got to be willing to do that. And unfortunately for the consumer, that means the willingness to pay a little bit more for their clothing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you just nailed it, that that's really what yeah. really needs to happen. I think that if we would willingly and and actually show this by paying more money for things, if we would do that, that we would find that a lot of the issues we're seeing in the supply chain yes. could be better. And that really kind of takes it back to, you know, pre-1990s when manufacturing was still predominantly domestically and, and clothes, clothes weren't thought of as, yeah. as disposable as they are. Yeah. It's true. It's true when people wore everything yeah. more than eight times, which is the average right now. Well, thank you so much, Amy. You're going to be back for our next episode where we talk about Made in the USA. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh, talk to everybody next time. Wow. This has turned out to be a really long episode. Thanks for hanging in there. And mega super thanks to Amy for literally talking to me for hours. 
She'll be back in our next episode to talk about Made in the USA and what that really means in 2020. It's not what you think. So I guess it's time for some closing thoughts. Wouldn't it be great if we added some super sensitive music right about now? (laughs) Maybe next week. I've worked in the fashion industry for a long time now. If you haven't noticed, most of my friends do too. I've always been the outsider with too many pets, no manicure, and occasionally hairy armpits. And yet, I've managed to meet all of these amazing, intelligent women along the way. We all want what is best for the world, for humanity, for our environment. We talk about it constantly. It's hard to learn the real truths about fashion's impact on the environment and people's quality of life all over the world. It's tough to reconcile, especially when you love going to work, you love the people you work with, and and so on. As I've been working on this podcast during a pandemic and times of, I hope, huge societal changes for the United States, I wonder what is going to happen for all of us next. My hope, my biggest hope, is that we will all change our behavior as consumers, thinking more, even just a tiny bit more, about how we spend our money. For me personally, the last few months have been surreal. (laughs) And that's an understatement. I haven't been working. I've been wondering if I'll ever work again, or even if the fashion industry will exist in the future. That's probably a little extreme. We're always going to need clothing, right? I've had to reevaluate my own existence as a consumer. I've realized how often I have bought things just to make myself feel better. Being unable to spend money for the last few months has helped me find other ways to feel happy that don't involve more stuff. This podcast is one of those things. I'm hoping that I can carry this new approach onto my life post-pandemic. And you know what? I hope you're experiencing the same thing. I would love to hear from you about what you're doing instead of buying stuff to make yourself happy, to cheer yourself up, to get through this. Send me an email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram where we go by the name at clotheshorsepodcast. I bet you didn't guess that. And yeah, we're still on Twitter at clotheshorsepod, but we still don't know what to tweet. It's work in progress. (laughs) If you like what's happening here, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Via the magic of algorithms, ratings bring us more listeners. I don't know how it works, but I believe it. And please tell a friend. We want to spread the gospel of not giving money to assholes, but we need your friends to make that happen. Thank you for listening. And thank you as always to Dustin Travis White for our theme music and audio expertise. Bye. (laughs) 